Let's take our Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, whenever I've had the opportunity to uh, bring you a, a message along another line. We've been looking at the book of Daniel. I did, uh, I, we looked at Daniel 1 on a Sunday evening. We looked at Daniel 2 in a combined Sunday school uh, lesson. And then tonight we're looking at Daniel chapter 3 and seeing what God has for us through this incredible book. As we look at the book of Daniel, before we look at Daniel chapter 3, just a couple of reminders about Daniel. The book of Daniel is all about God's rule and control. In fact, in chapter 6, we will see that all of this happened so that you may know that heaven rules or heaven is in control is what Daniel writes, the word of God was revealed to him and saying that the goal of Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation was that he would recognize God's rightful position. And so when we look at the book of Daniel, we have to recognize that chapters 1 through 6 are all about God's rule, God's boundary, not having any geographical boundaries. God's rule, God's control, excuse me, God's sovereignty, there are no geographical boundaries to God's rule and God's control. If you leave Indiana, you go to Illinois, God's still king. If you leave Illinois and you go to China, God's still king. You leave to China and go to the moon, God's still king, okay? There's no geographical boundary to the rule and reign and sovereignty of God. Everywhere that you go, everywhere that you travel, we worship, uh, we worship the same God. And that's important because we reference in Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 2 that there was this um, ancient Near Eastern mindset that every country had its own God. And when you went to that country, you worshiped that country's God. When I'm in that domain, I'm worshiping that country's God. And we see this reflected a little bit, remember, with Ruth when she says, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. It was a very common uh, mindset at that time that wherever I am going, I'm going to worship the God of that city lest I, may, let, lest I make that God upset while I'm there. You know, if I'm down in Goshen, I worship a different God than I'm in South Bend. And I don't want to worship the South Bend God when I'm in Goshen because if I do, my life's going to be miserable in Goshen. So I want to I kind of, you know what I mean? Like that's, that was the mindset. And Daniel is just saying, there's no boundary to God's rule. Daniel gets pulled out of the promised land and is taken all the way to Babylon, and even in Babylon he serves God. And, um, and so that's kind of where we're at. Chapter 12, 7, all the way through chapter 12 to the end of the book, Daniel is unfolding that not only is there no geographical boundary to God's rule and God's control, there's no time boundary. God was in control in the past. He's in control in the future as we look at prophecy. Not only is he in control in the future, but there's no boundary in regards to the natural or supernatural forces as we see these incredible, you know, interchanges between um, the, the angel who comes in and says, sorry, I'm late. I was fighting with the the demon that was over this area of the country and I got held up fighting with this demon and you're just like, you know, what's happening? I don't know. But uh, so we take scripture as far as it says and then we let the rest be in mystery. But we look at that and we say God's in control of all supernatural forces as well. So no boundary to God's rule and control any way you look at it, up, down, side to side, you know, it doesn't matter. There's no boundary to God's rule. And so when we look at chapter 3, we come to chapter 3 and we see the second most uh, famous, I guess you could call it, chapters in the book of Daniel. When you think of Daniel, you normally think of two stories, Daniel and the lion's den, and the other one, 
or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And so that's what we're looking at um, this morning in the golden image in the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3. So let's pray, and then we'll look at this chapter, which I've entitled, Bow or Burn. So let's look together. Let's pray, and then we'll look together. Lord, I pray you'd give us grace, help us to see your character through your word, that we may know you better, that we may serve you better, that we may love you more. As we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Read the entirety of chapter 3, and then we'll work through it, looking, making sure we understand the text, looking for the character of God, and principles for God's people as we live in a pagan land. Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Interestingly enough, this would be the same place where the uh, Babel, the Tower of Babel, was set up. And so you have the Tower of Babel, and then you have this other false god. A little interesting historical note there. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justice, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. We're going to call all those people, all the people, because there's the list over and over and over again. So when we say all the people, we're just going to reference the whole list, okay? Then all the people gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud and commanded, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of all the music... All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. There is your setting. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of all the music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods nor worship the golden image you've set up. The Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you're ready when you hear the sound of all this music to fall down and worship the golden image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? If you highlight in your Bible or you underline in your Bible, that's your phrase. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. That Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. The expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and all the other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men 
who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of, look at the next phrase, the Most High God. Come out and come here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, all those people gathered together and saw the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their head was not singed. The cloaks were not harmed. The smell of fire had not come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's make sure we're understanding what the text is saying, we're learning what this text teaches us about God, and we're extracting principles that will help us as we live in a pagan society. In verses 1 through 7, we see Nebuchadnezzar setting up an idol to be worshipped. We'll call this, if you want a heading, if you want a point, the command. Okay? The setting, the command, however you want to write that down. This could have been, more than likely, this wasn't a 90-foot high statue that was 9 feet wide or the slightest gust of air would have blown it over. More than likely, this was a giant, some sort of platform that he built and then held an idol up on it, okay? And so they set this thing up, and the goal of this idol was to replace the allegiance of everyone else to that one idol, So if you worshipped anything, not just the God of Israel, but if you worshipped anything but that idol, the goal was to replace your allegiance. We don't really know what the idol looked like. We just know that it was probably some sort of monument to a false god. And the command was simple. When you hear the music, you will bow or you will burn. And when 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 we think of this fiery furnace, we have to understand that this was a terrifying terrifying command you're talking about literally being burned alive here and so it was pay homage to the image or burn give outward testimony that you're submitting to a foreign god if you don't obey this command you're going to be punished and the outcome was predictable nobody wanted to disobey normally if you give people a choice of doing something or death they're going to do that thing normally right and so the outcome's predictable everybody in the entire country bows down when they hear the music and they worship the idol. It's interesting in the the language that's being used here in chapter 3, how many times the phrase the king comes up. It's mentioned six times here at the beginning. The king, the king, the king, the king, the king. And it's almost as if Daniel is emphasizing that, um, that Nebuchadnezzar is abusing his authority and controlling his people in this way, this authoritarian dictator. And so these three godly men found themselves in a unique situation where their authority was requiring them to do something that was against Scripture. The early apostles were put into this situation, and their response, we must obey God 
rather than man. And when we look at this, we don't want to use this chapter as an excuse to not obey any uh, law we don't like. You know, you get pulled over for speeding, and he says, you're going 55 and a 35, and you say, well, my Bible says I obey God, not man, right? And so we, we want to be careful that we don't abuse this principle here, but rather we see this as a picture that when our authority, our civil authority, is giving commands or instructions that are contrary to the Bible's clear teachings, we have a responsibility to stand with Scripture. And we saw a little bit of this in the COVID response, didn't we? Thankfully, we live in a, in a state that gave us lots of freedoms, but there was a time in the fall of 2020 when we got a letter from the St. Joe Department of Health. I don't know if you guys remember this or not. We got a letter, and um, they requested that we not meet from November to March. And they didn't say, don't do it. They just said, we're requesting you not meet, and if you do meet, we're going to send our health inspectors around to make sure you're doing it right. And um, in First Baptist Mishawaka, one of our sister churches in Mishawaka, actually had them show up. It's very interesting. And we wrote a letter back. The leadership got together. We wrote a letter back that said, thank you for caring about our health. Really appreciate the fact that you would care enough about our health that you would want us to stay healthy in this way. But we have to respectfully decline your request because Scripture says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And if our dear brothers and sisters in the Middle East can meet with a very real threat of death, then surely we, we need to meet together and, and take precautions as such. And, and that was a test. You know, we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, but we had to set ourselves towards God so that we are prepared when our civil authorities set themselves against God, because that's what's happening here. Nebuchadnezzar had set himself against God. He had picked the wrong battle, right? He set himself against the God of all creation. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. I love Psalm 2 and verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Don't find, I hope you never find yourself setting yourself against God. It's always a losing battle. Nebuchadnezzar did so, and with this command, he asked the question in verse 15, who is the God that's going to deliver you out of my hands? Right? Who's more powerful than I am? I'm telling you this. Who in the world do you think you are? What kind of God do you serve? Now, these guys had to make a decision. Would they bow? You know, they could have come up with all sorts of excuses, um, would anyone really notice if we just bowed quickly? You know, maybe we won't, we won't go all the way down. Or maybe, maybe I could just pretend to bow. You know? Or maybe I'll bow, and I'll be like two degrees off, and so I'm not really bowing at the idol, but I'm bowing you know, maybe to God, and, and then I won't get in trouble. I had a cousin, uh, it's kind of a, a very notorious story in our family, who um, was very rebellious. And at one point, I think she was maybe four or five, and it had got time. It had, it had got time in their family to um, to eat dinner. And my uncle, they all sat down to eat dinner. And she was standing at the table. And he looked at her and he said, "Honey, sit down." And she just looked at him and stood there. And he looked at her and he said, "Sit down." And if you grew up in a home like mine, you knew where the line was, and that was the line. And so that was the statement: "Sit down." 
And so she sat down and she looked at him and she said, I'm sitting in my body, but I am standing in my mind. Right. (laughs) That takes guts. They could have done that. I'm bowing with my body, but my heart's not in it, right? I will conform to this, but I will think of every excuse. Maybe, maybe if I make this one concession, we're in the leadership of Babylon, we're trusted, we have a lot of influence, and if I just make this one concession, even though it's, my heart's not really in it, I will maintain my platform for ministry, right? No. They realized that this was a first commandment issue. And so the command was given to bow or burn. And then in verses 16 through 18, we see the resistance. The resistance. The command is given. And then the resistance in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. King, you already know where we stand. Like you don't even need to ask us what's going to happen here because our testimony is that our lives have already reflected what you expect to hear from us. It doesn't take a lot of forethought is what this means. We don't have to think at all. I think the King James says something to the effect of, uh, we are not quick to answer you in this matter or something of that nature. In other words, it doesn't, it, I don't have to sit here uh, and, and think about this a lot. Like my mind's already, my mind was made up long ago that I side with God. And if anybody sides against God, then they side against me because my mind was made up long ago. That's what they're saying. I don't even need to answer you. This decision's already been made because the decision and the, the, the attitude to, to persevere in the midst of persecution doesn't happen when persecution comes. It happens years before on your knees, in your prayer closet, in your private devotion. I love verse 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. You ask me what God's able to deliver us? My God's able to deliver us. Then look at the first three words of verse 18. And these need to be circled and squared and highlighted and maybe tattooed on our foreheads. But if not. But if not. They anchored their answer in the sovereignty of God. This was the God that they aligned their hearts under and they served. God was their highest loyalty. Yes, they were loyal to Nebuchadnezzar. But church history has always recognized ordered loyalties. I'm loyal to Community Baptist Church, but if you try to pit me against my wife, I have an ordered loyalty here, okay? And so, yes, we are loyal, and I'm loyal to my friends, but if my friends pit me, try to, try to turn me against my God, I have an ordered loyalty here. Do you see what I'm saying? And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are loyal to their boss. They're loyal to Nebuchadnezzar, but here Nebuchadnezzar set himself against their supreme loyalty. And so they were forced to then set themselves against Nebuchadnezzar. They anchored their heart in the power of God. God can do this. They anchored their heart in the truth of God. He's able to do whatever he please, but if not, no matter the outcome, I will not bow. God, you're able to deliver me, and I really hope you do, but if you don't, it's fine. Lord, I'd really love to be done with this trial, but if not, it's the heart of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, wasn't it? Let this cup pass from me. But not my will, yours be done. Lord, I've been struggling with this ailment for years, and I would love to be rid of this. But if not, glory be to you. Lord, I've received the diagnosis that 
has months, not years. And I'd love to see the following happen in my life, or I'd love to live longer, but if not. That phrase, but if not, needs to be a part of our regular vocabulary. Lord, this is my desire, but if not, I trust you. Lord, this is how I pray, but if not, I'm living in faith. And that's really what their actions are showing here as they resist, as they set themselves against the command. You have the command coming down. Then you have these men setting themselves against Nebuchadnezzar because they're set towards God and they're resisting the sinful, the, the sinful influence here. And they exhibited true faith. They are not focused on whether or not they're going to be delivered. They're focused on the fact that they will not bow. They will be obedient because faith is required for genuine obedience. Friend, listen carefully. You're responsible for living in faith. Everything else is up to God. Everything else. If I take this step, I may lose my job. If I take this step, how am I going to provide for my family? If I take this step, what is my you know, wife going to, how will she respond when I, when I explain to her this is what God's doing in my life? How will my husband respond? What will my kids think when I sit down and ask their forgiveness? And on and on and on. And we have to leave all of that to God because God is in charge of of all the repercussions of right actions. All we do is live in faith. Our God is able to deliver me, but if not, I'm not going to bow. I mean, throw me in the fiery furnace, I'm not going to bow. And then we see the miracle in verses 19 through 27. Notice how Nebuchadnezzar responds. It's common response among narcissistic leaders when their leadership is challenged is that they get angry. You show me an angry person, I'll show you a prideful person, and usually someone who's hiding something. Is that he responds in anger, explodes. Furnace heated seven times hotter than it usually took. So much that the men that threw him in the furnace were killed. And then all of a sudden, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were marched to the furnace and were thrown in. One of my great heroes is probably a man that very few or maybe none of you have ever heard of. His name is John Rogers. John Rogers was born in the 1500s and was a pastor in England. And in the 1540s and 50s, pastored a church. And uh, if you know history, in 1550, uh, Mary I came to power that was later known as Bloody Mary. And she immediately cracked down on gospel preaching. John Rogers continued to preach the gospel and was warned to stop or he'd be put in jail. So he preached a sermon after that warning, which he condemned the teachings of the Catholic Church and preached the true gospel as the only gospel. He was immediately arrested, taken to Newgate Prison. He stayed there for a year. While he was in prison, his wife gave birth to a child that he had never met. He was tortured by the guards. The guards finally gave him an opportunity to be released. And they said, all you have to do is recant of the teaching that, that, that you've been teaching. Just recant of this gospel by faith outside of the church, outside the Catholic church, and we'll let you go. And his response was, I'll seal the gospel with my blood if I need to. And so in 1555, he's marched out of Newgate Prison. 
The announcement was made that John Rogers was going to be put to death, and so he walks out of Newgate Prison with guards on either side, and they march him through downtown London. And as he's marched through London, his church comes and lines up on either side and starts singing hymns. And as he walks by, he sees his wife and his children and his young child that he's never met that was birthed while he was in prison. And he's marched to the stake. He's tied to the stake. He begins to sing hymns and they ask him to recant his testimony and he refused. They light, they lit the fire. And what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not happen to John Rogers. Because as the fire slowly consumed him, the onlooker's testimony was that he, he like washed his hands in the flame as he was singing, as if it felt like cool water washing over him. And he died. And that was the spark that lit the Reformation in England. That God used his sacrifice for the glory of God in England. And that same God used the rescue of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for his glory in Babylon. And God was good both times. Over 500 Christians would be killed by Mary I. You say, why do I... Why, why, Pastor Joe, why did you tell us that story? Number one, there are a lot of people in church history that you don't know that you need to get to know, and John Rogers is one of them. Secondly, because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were being marched to their death. I mean, we know this story backwards and forwards. I told this story to a kid at camp who'd never heard it before, and he was like, what? But for us, we grew up in church. We know what's going to happen. We're not, we're not nervous. We kind of feel bad for the guards because they didn't see that coming, right? But we're not nervous because we know they're going to go in and they're going to come out better because their ropes are gone and they don't even smell bad, right? But as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand on the edge of the fiery furnace, they're standing on the edge of death and in their mind is, but if not, God is still good. I will not. They're thrown in, and God saw fit in his providence to rescue them. God did not deliver them from the fire. He delivered them in the fire. But he delivered them all the same. Now, we need to be very careful here. Because this is often where Daniel chapter 3, with good People who have good intentions go off in a wrong direction and they turn into a Baptist Joel Osteen and they start saying, in your fires, God will deliver you. And yet there are some of you who are in the middle of a trial and you say, actually, that's probably not going to happen. Because we don't look at this and say, God delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from suffering, and God's going to deliver you from suffering as well. And you're going to come out of your suffering not even smelling bad. You're, it, you're just going to come out of there, and you're going to be so joyful and so happy. 
Flames can't touch you. That's not what this is about. This is about the fact that God decided for his glory to rescue his children so that a pagan king could see the power of God. As the king looked into the fire, he saw not just three people, but four people. What was true of them? They were unbound. The fire only touched what God allowed it to touch. It burned away their ropes, their, their cords, their, their cordage. And, and when you are in the midst of suffering, it is true that only what God allows in your life will be touched by suffering. And if you are suffering in this way, God has allowed it and God has brought it into your life so that your faith can be deepened. They were walking in the midst of the fire. God did not remove them from the fire. He preserved them within the fire and they are not hurt because the testing that God takes you through is not for your detriment. It is always for your growth. And the appearance of the fourth was like the son of the gods. This is not a statement of faith by Nebuchadnezzar. This is a statement of observance as he looks in and says there's something different about that fourth body in there. Who is the fourth man? Some say an angel. Some say a pre-incarnate form of Jesus. We don't really know. It doesn't really matter because God rescued him, right? Whether God sends Michael or Gabriel, or whether it was some type of, something we don't understand, some type of pre-incarnate form of, of Christ. It doesn't matter because God rescues them. And the point of this passage is that God is working in ways that see, he sees fit in order to reveal his glory to the world. Nebuchadnezzar says it's like the son of a god. Like we said, this is not a statement of faith by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, some would look at that phrase and say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar is recognizing that God's in there with them. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there's something different about that form that's radiant. It's obviously more than human. We've seen the command, the resistance, the miracle, and then the response in verses 28 through 30. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He calls them out. He references that they are servants of the Most High God. The God that is over all of the other gods is the way this is, um, the way this is phrased. He recognized that there's a higher power at work that is preserving Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. However, this is not his statement of faith. This is not the moment of Nebuchadnezzar's um, conversion, just like in chapter 2. We ended chapter 2 the same way. Nebuchadnezzar makes a statement, and you go, man, that's a really good statement. But that is not a statement of his conversion. This is simply an observation that there is the power of God on these men's life. Because there's a difference between people knowing there is a God and seeing the power of God and placing their faith and trust in that God as their Savior. Nebuchadnezzar in, in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel, the truth is that your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of secrets, seeing that thou couldst reveal this secret. And yet that, once again, is not a statement of faith because 
In the next chapter, he says, bow to a false god or burn. And now again, he's saying, whoa, there's something at work here. Notice the comments in verse 27 that, Nicod- that Nicodemus, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar makes regarding the miracle. Look at these comments. This is interesting. The fire had no power. The hair of their heads were not singed. The protection of God was on them. Their cloaks were not burned. No smell of fire was on them. And we need to be very careful not to make a direct correlation between the fiery trial these men went through and the trials that you're going through because, friends, you may come out of your fire smelling like smoke. You may come out of your fire ragged and torn and barely alive, okay? The focus on this, of this whole statement is on that first phrase, the fire had no power. Why? Because God is the one who's holding all the power. God used this opportunity as a testament to the king about the power of God. The contrast is that those who are not worshiping the true God are consumed by fire, and those who do worship the true God are preserved from the fire. You see that? The, 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 the guards who step in, not worshipers of Yahweh, are consumed. Those who are worshipers of Yahweh are preserved. Look at um, verse 28 in his statement about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They trusted in God. They set aside the king's command. Listen to what he says. They yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. They yielded up their bodies. This is why they were blessed. They delivered their bodies over to God that they would not serve any other God except their own God. And just like John Rogers, they said, we may seal this message with our own blood. And they were, they were not only ready to do so, they took the step to do so, right? Nebuchadnezzar had not aligned his heart under God, but yet he had seen God's power displayed. What do we learn about God's character in this passage? Well, number one, God is the only God, there is no other. This chapter is a test of first commandment living. There is one God. He is your highest loyalty. Number two, God owns my body and has authority over my body because he created me. Why did these three men yield their bodies to God rather than to Nebuchadnezzar? Because the the question is, are you going to bow with your body or are you going to sacrifice your body and let it be burned? And they say, well, that decision was made a long time ago. Of course, I've yielded my body to God. But the question needs to be asked, why did they do that? Because they recognize that God has authority over their body, that God created them and he owns them. And we need to recognize this as well. And we um, we could spend an entire hour going through a meditation on all of the passages that reflect the truth that God has created your body perfectly exactly how he wants you to be created, that he owns that body. And all of the implications that that has on our day-to-day life. 
whether that comes into taking care of that body or being an accurate representation of God to others with our body or, or not sinning with our body or recognizing that God created our body and our soul and that God created us as a unit. That's where the trans, the whole trans argument falls apart. Number three, God always delivers his servants who recognize him as God. He may not deliver you in the way that you think you should, but he will deliver you in the way that is best. God always delivers his servants. The ultimate deliverance in heaven. What are some principles that we can extract from this passage for living in a pagan culture? Number one, my obedience to God is not contingent on the outcome. My obedience to God is not contingent on the outcome. I obey. First and foremost. Children, that's why it's so important that you learn to obey your parents. I know we don't have a lot of kids in here. But the obedience, every time that you obey your parents, you are practicing one day to be launched out on your own and to continue to obey your Heavenly Father. God is calling to you to obey even if it costs you your life. Your obedience to God is not contingent on the outcome. Number two, God blesses those who yield their bodies to him. In the next one, two, three, four generations, I don't know how long it will take, but our culture is quickly falling away from a protection of biblical morals. And we need to teach the next generation grandparents parents, singles who need to be investing in spiritual motherhood and fatherhood and the children that God brings into your life, we need to be teaching them, but if not. Like, this is what we're praying, but if not, that's okay. God's still good. Like, this is, this is what I want. This is how I would like God to act. This is how, if I were God, right, this is what I would do. But if not, my mind was made up long ago. For God will work in whatever ways, reveal his glory the best and is in my best interest. It's for my good and for his glory. That's God's providence. And so I trust him. I live in faith. And I say, but if not, but if not, we need an, a generation that looks at those that are in this room living their lives in a way that says, but if not, I, I will obey. And God has the power to deliver me, but if not, my decision was made long ago. Number three, total power corrupts. You say, whoa, where did that come from? We should expect those in authority who are not believers to be corrupt in their dealings. It didn't take them... It didn't shock them that Nebuchadnezzar said this. Right? We should expect, why in the world would an unsafe person support biblical morals? Dark People who live in darkness love the darkness. We talked about that this morning. We should look in pity, but we should also expect unsafe people to act like unsafe people and unsafe leaders to act like unsafe leaders. Number four, the gods of this pagan society will fight for your heart and you must resist. Make up your mind now. The decision is already made. When that moment comes, I don't even have to answer. 
because the decision was made long ago. Nebuchadnezzar, I don't even have to answer you in this matter. I, don't say anymore. I made the decision long ago. And fifth, just as the angel of the Lord delivered them from the fire, so Jesus delivers us from eternal damnation and offers us eternal life. I believe that is the proper way to view if you want to pull a direct correlation between um, the fiery furnace and some sort of illustration that it would be, that God is teaching us, it would be a picture of hell. Is that God preserves his children from the fire, and yet those who reject God will be consumed. It's not a perfect picture, but if you, if you just have to have a picture here, that's where you need to be. But the truth that chapter 3 shows us is that God's going to show his glory. For some, it will be through the sacrifice of their life. And thus, like John Rogers, 1500, 1550, sparked the flame of the Reformation in England. And for others, it will be a dramatic rescue. But whatever the case, God will deliver in whatever way is best. And we trust him. And we say, God, we know you have the power. And we want you and our will to act in this way. But if not, we trust you. And it doesn't change our view of God. It doesn't change our worship of God. So may we live with these truths in mind. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage that gives us this beautiful account of these godly men. May our lives be dedicated to this same God that they worshipped. May we recognize that you receive the glory in working out your plan as you see fit. And for those that are rescued from trials, we praise you. And for those who find themselves giving their lives for the cause of of the gospel, we praise you as well for you use both for your glory. We thank you that all of your children will be rescued from the fires of hell. And may we continue to worship the God whose rule and control has no boundaries. As we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.